This is a prelude to the final show, you guys. This whole, whole creation is a prelude to the final show. And that final show, there's going to be a lot of Trinidad songs. and I'm hoping not, but there might even be country western. I don't know. Uh, well, this is going to be a heaven, this is going to be a hell. And that's where I end up. You're bleeding hard. No! I'm sorry. I okay. can't. That was strictly opinion, not doctrine. <laughs> okay. Um, anyways, Revelation 7 talks about how on that day there'll be people from every nation and singing and praising in their own tongue and we're going to understand each other. All dressed in white. Uh, it's just going to be beautiful. And this is kind of a prelude to that. I just appreciate also just the uh, freedom that was here. Uh, don't be bound. You know, don't let anything bind you. Um, you know, the truth shall set you free. And um, just to be free in worshiping God. Um, get used to it because heaven's going to be very, very free. Praise God. Let's do a little teaching here. Hebrews chapter 2. We're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to lay just a foundation here this morning for a study that's going to kind of continue, I think, uh, for the next week or two or so. Um, because I think the passages that we're going to be considering here this morning are just packed with profound stuff. They're very difficult. They're the kind of verses you could just read and not get anything out of unless you took the time to pick it apart, dissect it, digest it, and uh, let it saturate. And that's what we're going to be doing here. We're never, we're never in a real big hurry to uh, get through the Word of God. Uh, the quantity doesn't count for a whole lot. Quality is what we're looking for. So we want to go deep into it. Let me just say this also, uh, just as a thing. As I'm looking up here at the people sitting along the, the, the walls here. Um, be praying about uh, the answer to this. Um, we are just trying to discern the will of God. Um, it, it might be very easy to discern very quickly because there's... <laughs> Uh, some people are, here are saying that we can't use the stage any longer. And so, you know, it's kind of like God will force our hand if that happens. We're thinking about uh, a move into the gym, uh, but there's other problems and uh, stuff associated with that. We're considering the possibility of going to three services, maybe on a Saturday night. And that's another thing we're going to be praying about. Please, if you feel invested in this ministry, join with us in prayer that God would really make known uh, His uh, will to us. Uh, God speaks to you as well as He speaks to anybody else. So if you really feel something or have an idea or whatever, uh, send it to us. Uh, just, just, or tell us. Uh, let us know. Talk to us. And uh, let's just be in this together. Um, we're we're going to get a solution to this. It's going to happen uh, soon. Uh, but thanks for... In fact, you've got the most comfortable chairs in the seat place, so don't worry about it. Okay. He, a little review. Hebrews chapter 1, the author was talking about the superiority of Jesus in relationship to the angels. He's talking to Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to their Judaism. And one of the elements of what that would consist in is would be in taking Jesus and not making him anathema or the Antichrist or something, but, but lowering him from the status of divine Son of God down to the status of an angel. We know that there was a lot of Jews in the first century who did that. It fit their theology well to see Jesus not as a, a supreme Son of God, but as an angel. The author here is very concerned about that, very concerned. And so in chapter 1, he spends a lot of time showing how Jesus is superior to an angel. He is the Lord God, Creator, Almighty, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Angels don't even come close to that. Then in the beginning of chapter 2, now remember, the chapter divisions weren't part of the original record. That those were put in later on. So you don't have chapters and verses in the original. He took a little break for four verses, 
to wake his readers up, to warn them. And that's what we dealt with last week. He basically says this. If, if, the, if Jesus is superior to the angels, then the message that Jesus brings is superior to the message the angels brought. And if there were severe consequences for rejecting the message that came through the law, which was mediated by angels, the author says, then how shall we escape, the author says, if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, when you understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us and the salvation he's brought to us, we have to begin to see the passion, the heart of God in becoming a human being and dying for us that we might live eternally with him. What will the consequences be if we neglect that, if we walk away from that? So he's saying to his audience in, in, in the first verse of chapter 2, you've got to pay close attention to this. This is serious stuff. And it is very serious stuff. I don't believe that anyone is going to lose out in eternity because of a technicality, because of some minor doctrinal point. You weren't baptized just the right way, or you didn't say the cross the right way, or, 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 or your eschatology wasn't quite right, or something like that. If you have a thief on the cross heart, you're saved. But what the author is telling us here is this. Of all the things that you've got to be careful with, the identity of Jesus Christ is the first and foremost. Who Jesus is, what he has come to do. This is the center of the Christian faith. And so he's warning these Hebrew Christians, you're playing with fire, this is dangerous stuff. Pay close attention to what you've been taught. He's now going to pick up this theme about the superiority of Jesus. And pick up the argument that he had just left off on. And just so you know, because this is a complex verse, I'm going to lay out the forest here. I'm going to lay out the big picture here. And then we'll read the verses and, and pick it apart a little bit here this morning. The question he's going, to answer, he's going to address is this. If Jesus is really superior to the angels, how is it then that Jesus Christ is a human being? Because we all know, and every Jew in the first century would know, that human beings are made lower than the angels. We are more limited than they are. We are uh, less intelligent. Um, we have less power than they have. So if Jesus is superior to the angels, how is it that he's made a human being? And, and a, a, a Jewish person could be wondering this. The author's going to answer it in a kind of a surprising way. He's going to say two things. Number one, true human beings are in one sense insignificant, it seems, and we are certainly made lower than the angels. But you've got to also know this. Our destiny is to be above the angels. It's hot stuff. Now, being a human being ain't, ain't so bad. And therefore, Jesus Christ being made a human being, that in and of itself doesn't mean that he's inferior to the angels. He is a full human being. But the destiny of human beings is to be above angels. Think about that. We'll get to it in a second. He also then does a second thing, and he does this. It's, he says this. But Jesus Christ isn't just a human being. He is the Savior of human beings. And the way that we're going to attain the destiny that we have above angels is precisely by Jesus Christ becoming a human being. Okay, that, that's what's going on in this passage. It's profound stuff. And in dealing with this, he's addressing one of the most fundamental questions a human being can ever ask. And that is, what is it to be a human being? Who are we? In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be answering that question. Uh, who, what is man? Who is human being? And I think we're going to see this. When you get a 
So many Christians have, a, have pieces of the puzzle, but they don't have the whole puzzle. They have little pieces of Christian doctrine, but the whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense because they don't form a coherent whole out of it. And this verse here is going to lay out a big picture for us whereby all the pieces of Christianity can begin to make sense. I'm not going to say that there will be no more mystery after this, but the whole begins to make a lot of sense. I think Christianity just makes profound sense when you understand what it's teaching. Trouble is, a lot of people just have little pieces of it. So th- this is going to be a broad sort of teaching time. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2. Here's what he says. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. Okay, so he's saying, look at you think angels are hot stuff and human beings are lower than angels? I got a word for you. The world to come, God didn't subject it to, you, to, to angels. It's subjected to human beings. We're going to rule. We'll say more about that a little bit later on. But there is a place where someone has testified. He's going to quote the Psalms here. He says, you're right. We look low. We look, we look meagerly. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care about him? Now, this isn't a prophecy about Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy about human beings. These are just Semitic ways of saying human beings. We look so small. We look so insignificant in the total cosmos. How could God be interested in us? We do seem very small and puny and worm-like, you know, when you look at the big picture. So he's saying, yeah, yeah, we look really small. And the angels look really big. But God didn't subject the world to come to the angels. Not only that, but in verse 7, you made him, human beings, a little lower than the angels. Or he could be saying there, the Greek could be, for a little while, for a little while we're lower than the angels. But you crowned him with glory and honor. And you put everything under his feet. Think about this. This is what he's talking about human beings here. Not under the angels' feet, but under human beings' feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. I want you to get a grip on this. Read 1 Corinthians 3 one time. It just now comes to me. I don't know why, but just read 1 Corinthians 3 sometime. No, 1 Corinthians 3 says, All things belong to Christ, and you belong to Christ. Therefore, all things belong to you. You were made to rule the world. We'll see here in a second. But then he says, yet, at present, we do not see everything subjected to him. We don't see everything subjected to to human beings. They are, but we don't see it yet. It's not manifest yet. It's not clear yet. But, praise God, verse 9, we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, or made lower than the angels for a little while, just like every human being is. But he is now, now that he's resurrected, now that he's ascended, he is now crowned with glory. He is now crowned with honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every human being. And that's how we're going to reign over the angels. Complex stuff. Hang with me. Let's say a little prayer and get into it. Father, let your spirit reign here for the next 15 minutes. Make this word clear to us. God, I just pray that in some way we could inch forward a little bit in understanding and accepting the responsibility of who we are because of what you made us to be and because of who you saved us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I can get in my passage really quick here by quoting uh, an author, uh, Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a genius. He was a famous mathematician. He was one of the founders of infinitesimal calculus. He invented the first calculator, which was a forerunner to the computer. This is all in the 17th century. Real bright guy. He was also a Christian and wrote a lot of profound thoughts. Unfortunately, he died at the very, very, very young age of 39, which I happen to be right now, and therefore never had a chance to put it together in a book. But when they died, they found all these notes together, and they found the book he was intending to write on Christianity, and they collected it and put it in this book called Pensées. Pensées? 
uh, which means reflections. Doesn't know what, who knows French? Pensee? I, I, I know French, but I, I don't know it very well. Pensee, it means reflections. And this is a picture of him on the front. Now, listen to this. I read this when I was an uh, undergraduate, and it's got some profound stuff in it. Look how much I've marked up. Uh, see how I, I, I really, see, impressive. Yes, I've read this book many, many times. One of my favorite people. He says this. What sort of freak is man? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> that came from a woman. She thinks she's excluded. Right? Yeah, women. <laughs> Pascal was a feminist. <laughs> what sort of freak is man? Males. What are they good for? Okay. How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm. <laughs> Repository of truth, sink of doubt and error. Glory and excrement of the universe. <laughs> hey, this is Pascal. Nice. Well, listen. Know then, proud man, what a paradox you are to yourself. Be humble, impotent reason. Be, be silent, feeble nature. Learn that man infinitely transcends man. Hear from your master your true condition, which is unknown to you. Listen to God. Is it not as clear as day that man's condition is a contradiction? Here's the deal here. Pascal's touching on something. We experience ourselves. This is what leads to the question, who are we? We experience ourselves as, as, as contradictory, or at least as paradoxical. We, we embody mutually antithetical qualities, it seems. Do you ever have times where you feel so blessed, so anointed, so very, very, very close to the throne of God, and then your kid starts crying, or your daughter looks back to you, or the furnace goes out, or you blew a fuse, or the car won't work, or you got a pain in your stomach, or whatever, and bam, you crash down to earth. I mean, this is happening to me last night. I'm in there preparing, you know, my heart to, for the Lord. I'm just like, oh, Lord, hallelujah, praise you, Lord, praise you, Lord. Hello. And then all of a sudden, the wall, I hit the wall. I was so tired, and I was just so ornery, and I was like, oh, I got to get to bed, and where's, I couldn't find my clothes, you know, and, and, and I'm like, I couldn't find my, I couldn't find, I, I wanted to wear a black belt, not a brown belt. This doesn't match. But I couldn't find my black belt. So I'm looking around, where's my belt, you know, and, and she's like, you know, she's, she goes, now, you're not saying that I'm supposed to know this stuff, right? Because she always thinks that I'm like asking her. She says she knows a lot more than I do, so I'm asking her, have you seen my shirt? Have you seen a belt? Do I have any underwear? I mean... <laughs> and bam, you're looking at Colonel City, right out of the blue. I was just five minutes ago at the throne of God. And now I'm just so carnal. And, you know, and I'm not talking about you know, the next day, how you can be so spiritual one day, and the next day you're so carnal. This is like you know, instant metamorphosis, transformation. It's like, ooh, you know, you're singing praises one minute, and your praises are coming out of your mouth. The next minute, not praises are coming out of your mouth. And it's like, oh. How is it that we can soar so high and we can sink so low? How is that? How is it life seem, this is always gets me, it's, life seems so precious. Human life seems so incredibly precious, valuable, wonderful. Like it just should be protected. But it can be snuffed out like that. A mother notices something in the window when her daughter walks in front of a car. She's holding her hands and the daughter just, boom, bam, that's a real life story. Just killed. Like that. A moment's inattention. A guy I knew, 20 years old, healthy, wonderful, swimming champion, all this kind of stuff, riding a motorcycle, forgets to look the other way. A car hits him, he flows, flies off his motorcycle, hits his head, and he's in a wheelchair, can't think a straight thought the rest of his life. Like that, it's gone. It's amazing how little, trivial, insignificant things just snuff us out. 
but it seems so incredibly valuable. One little cell mutates the wrong way, and you're born, the kid's born totally deformed. How is it that life can be so fragile when it seems so precious? It seems so cheap, and yet it seems so precious. It's a contradiction. How is it that we can be the glory and the refuse, the excrement of the universe at one and the same time? We can, we can think such great thoughts. We can dream such great dreams. But we can also create such incredible nightmares and inflict them on people. We are so far above the animal kingdom, it seems. We can just think rational thoughts that they can't think. We can, we can give our life. We can be altruistic. But then at the same time, we can turn around and do things to our kids that an animal would never think about doing. As high above the animals we are, that's how low we can sink below the animals. How is it that human beings can be like this? We can be a Mother Teresa or we can be an Adolf Hitler. We're a contradiction. We can be so wise, we can be so stupid. We can fly to the moon, but we can't build a bridge between the races. How is that? We can understand nuclear fission, but we can't understand ourselves. We can control subatomic particles, but we can't control our own lust. We can't control our own tongue. How is that? How is it that we can just be so angelic at times and so demonic at times? The same human race, what kind of a freak are human beings? How is it that we can know so much and yet and achieve so much, but then we use it to kill other people with? How is it that we can understand so much, but we don't even understand ourselves? We can achieve so much, but we can't achieve joy. We can't achieve peace. We just can't figure that out. We can't figure out why we can't figure it out. How is it that we're so alienated in life? Why is it, as Caligula once said, that men die and they are not happy? That is the mystery of the universe. How could nature, I'm talking in terms of the carnal natural mind now, how could nature produce creatures like ourselves that are so out of sync with it? How is it that human beings can have longings that the world can't, can't fill? We long for meaning, but there is no meaning in terms of the natural mind. We can't figure that out. How is it that by the natural course of evolution, complex protoplasm, just bringing forth creatures like this, we could create fish in the middle of the Sahara Desert where there is no water, longing for stuff that the world can't give us, thinking that good should overcome evil, thinking that life should go on forever, thinking that life should have a point and a purpose, when in fact, according to the natural mind, we end up six feet below the ground, worm food, and that's the final exclamation point of our entire life. We're out of sync with things. There's something terribly wrong. Man is a contradiction. How is this possible? And a lot of people have a lot of different answers. A lot of philosophers sit around and they try to theorize on this. Karl Marx thinks that if everyone just had enough to eat and, and, and you know, everything was in common and there were no rich people, well, then everyone would be happy and satisfied. And so he invented communism. And communism turns around and inflicts all sorts of horrors on people and the rich are just as unhappy as the poor. Well... They just don't notice it as much. <laughs> How is that? That's the contradiction. The mystery of the ages, what is a human being? The Bible has an answer for this, and it's a profound answer. It's a profound answer. It is, I believe, the only answer that makes sense. It's found in the passage that we read here. In a nutshell, this passage says this. I've already outlined it. We were created to rule. Right now, we're not ruling. But in the end, we shall rule because Jesus Christ came down and restored our proper place. Let me just break that down very quickly here. We're created in the image of God, the Bible says. Three points here, two points here. Yeah, I only have time for one. Let's see. We're created in the image of God. We're created in the image of God. The Bible says, Genesis 1.26. 
We are made little God lookalikes. We are given some of the attributes of God in a little form. We are not God. The worst thing we can ever do to ourselves is begin to think that we're God, but we're made in the image of God. We are personal because God is personal according to the Bible. We are rational, or we long for things to be rational at least, because God is rational. We have consciousness because God is consciousness. God has consciousness. We are capable of good because God is good. We are morally responsible beings because God is a moral being. That's why we have longings that outrun what this world can ever give us. That's why we can ask questions that we ourselves cannot answer. We were created for a relationship with God. He desires to have a passionate relationship with us, that the relationship between a man and a woman in in marriage only is an analogy analogy of, an approximation of. He longs to have that kind of passionate union with us, so he creates us with this desperate need for him that only he can fill. But if we're not in relationship with him, we walk through our lives hungry for that, not knowing what it is we're looking for. If that is not true, then somebody explain to me why we are such freaks of nature. If we are just complex protoplasm, how is it that this glob of protoplasm here is so unhappy with the way things naturally are? You don't find dogs running around with existential angst worried about the purpose of their life. But human beings do all the time. People commit suicide for this stuff. How is it that nature, by time and chance alone, could produce beings like us? But if you want, look at if a cause can't be greater, if an effect can't be greater than a cause. If I drop a ball here, it cannot bounce up higher than the level I dropped it at because the effect can't be greater than the cause. How is it that the cause of human beings is irrational, unconscious, non-purposive, and amoral when we, the effect, are purposeful, conscious, rational, and long for meaning? It's not possible. But when you understand that we're created by an almighty God in his image, then you understand who we are. We are beings of infinite worth. God made us like that. We are not just complex protoplasm. You start believing that long enough, you're going to start acting like that. You want to know what complex protoplasm acts like? Look at the crime statistics. That's what it acts like. It's just a, you're just an amoeba. You've got the morality of an amoeba. But the Bible says that we are in the image of God and we're called to live like that. The second thing you've got to know is this. We are called to be in the image of God because we are called to rule. And I'm just going to set up what I'm going to talk about next week. Throughout the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, for example, at the very start, it says that God said that we are to have dominion over the earth. We are to have dominion over the earth. We are to rule over the earth. We are to have authority over the earth. God wants to have his sovereign authority delegated through mediaries. We are the mediaries for the, for the earth. We are to carry out God's love on this planet. So he puts Adam in the garden. He says, Adam, your job... In the kingdom of God, you have jobs. Your job is to take care of the garden. Your job is to till the earth. And there's these four rivers that are going in every direction. And many theologians think that that was there to tell us that the plan of God was for the human race to finally populate the whole world and carry out his lordship on the earth. <coughs> That's why Adam is told to, to uh, name the animals. It shows his superiority to them. That's a plan that God never gave up on. Though we blew it, we'll talk about this next week, we blew it. We surrendered our lordship over to Satan, which is why the Bible now says that Satan is the lord of this world. But God always was looking to reinstitute, reestablish human beings as, as the lords of this earth. And the kingdom of God is going to be the time when God as king is going to set, up, set us up as little kings. So in Revelations chapter 3, and Revelations chapter 5, and Revelations chapter 21, you read about how in the kingdom of God, the bride of Christ shall rule the world with Christ. Now that'll be our job. That's why the author says here, it was not to angels that the future world's going to be subjected. 
It is to this race that God has created in His image that are called to be kings. I want you to know this here this morning. If you don't get anything else, know that if you're a believer, see, if you're not a believer, you don't know what you're created for, and you haven't even experienced life until you made Jesus Christ Lord of your life. You don't even, there's a missing piece in your life, and if you'll just surrender your life to Him, it will all of a sudden fit. Not that your life's going to be a better roses from here on in, but you'll, you'll wake up to what you're alive for, why you're created. Life is found in Jesus Christ. And then God calls us to be kings and princes and rulers of this world. Paul, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, gets really ticked off at the Corinthians. You know why? Because they're bringing each other to court. They're suing one another. And Paul says this. Read it. I don't have time to turn to it right now. But he says this. Why are you guys going to pagan courts to settle judgments? Don't you know that you are going to judge the world? If, if you're going to be the judges of the world, can't you settle these little petty disputes? In fact, he goes on in verse 4 to say, you're going to be the judge of the angels. You're going to rule the angels. Goodness gracious, learn how to settle these disputes among yourself. You're in training right now. God wants to raise you up to be the leaders in the kingdom of God. Learn how to settle disputes now. God wants the church to be the glass of the future to the world around us so that when the world can look at us, they see what human beings are supposed to be. They see how God's love can really work in, in, in people's lives. They can see here the ring of truth of why God put people here on the planet in the first place. Jesus says in John 17, that they shall know that I am sent from the Father and that my word is true by the fact that you are one. By the fact that God's nature, His triune nature is beginning to be lived out among us. But you've got to know that you are going to rule the world. You have got an inheritance that is infinite. We are Christians of royal blood. Amen? We are born, the Bible says, of imperishable seed. We have an inheritance that cannot be counted. What Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 6, what the author here is going to begin to say a little bit later on, is we need to begin to live like that, begin to act like a dignitary, know that our job is to spread this truth throughout the whole world, begin to act, begin to think, begin to know yourself as a child of God that, that God called you to be. Now we don't see this very clear, the author says. It's not clear right now. It seems very screwed up. That's why we experience ourselves as a contradiction. You know why we have so many different polarities in us? We are kings, but we've fallen from our throne. What God wants to do is to pick us back up and put us on there to resolve those contradictions. And what you've got to know this morning is this. There'll be a time, and it may not be very long, when God's kingdom is going to come on this world. Amen? And when God's kingdom will come on this world, there will not be those contradictions anymore. And when God's kingdom is come on this world, this, this, uh, the cheapness of life being snuffed out like that when there's so much at stake isn't going to happen anymore. There won't be the famines that there are now. There won't be the warfare that there are now. There won't be the racism that there is now. You won't find the horror stories on TV like, like, like you find now. And we ourselves are, are not going to be in the contradictory state that we are in. The Bible says that the entire creation groans for the manifestation of the sons of God. We're in a state of travail now. Those who are supposed to be leaders on the creation are now fallen. And so the whole creation grows for the, grows <coughs> for the manifestations of the sons of God. But as the Trinidad band gets ready to come up here, you've got to know this. God's kingdom is going to come. And it's going to come through our spreading the word on this earth. And it's going to come when Jesus Christ is set up as Lord of all. And we, the bride of Christ, are reigning with him.